The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the, <clears throat> excuse me, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Track, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. We do have a special introductory price for all three newsletters, each of them separately, however. But give a call to Claudio Bossi in uh, our New York office at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or uh, go to our website at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com, and there you can access all three newsletters as well. Perhaps the best website to go to now for everything that I do is jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. There you can access this radio show uh, and all three uh, of those newsletters, as well as uh, various things that I do on CNBC, Fox, Bloomberg, and the like, video interviews as well that I've done with CEOs of various companies. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors also for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are Merrick's Gold, Visible Gold Mines, Lucky Strike Resources, American Manganese, Rye Patch Gold Corp., and Romeo's Gold Resources. Well, while the Western economies have not only been weak, but on the precipice of a disastrous plunge into a deflationary depression, the world has held out the hope that the developing economies led by China could keep this global economy from entering into a major contraction, the likes of which has not been seen since the 1930s, or some people are suggesting worse than that. But how safe a bet is China to keep this from happening? Is China a one-way bet towards continued growth that will lead commodity prices higher and higher? Or does China itself have enormous problems that could cause that economy to implode? For example, there are reportedly some 64 million empty apartments in China. They are empty because not many Chinese people can afford to live in them. And there were apartments that were built by government uh, because they wanted to keep the GDP rising. They weren't demanded by the market. It wasn't market decision-making. It was planned economy. And so you have a mismatch. You have wonderful new apartments, but they're too expensive for the masses of Chinese to live in, so they're basically uh, developing ghost cities. So was, is this going to be a problem? Our main guest this week is Dr. Jim Walker, who is convinced that China is itself on the precipice of an economic disaster. Dr. Walker is a Scottish-educated economist who lives in Hong Kong, and his work is largely centered on Asian economics, although he does take a global view as well. Dr. Walker will explain why he is so bearish, perhaps one of the most bearish voices I've heard on China. He is also an Austrian school economist, which no doubt explains a good part of his bearishness. Following Dr. Walker, my partner Chen Lin will be with me, 
to give his views on China. China's probably not as bearish on China uh, on the Chinese economy as Dr. Walker is, but um, China is very well. But China is very well plugged in, I should say, into the mood of the Chinese people, given the fact that his family lives in Beijing and many of his friends are still there. Chen provides, I think, a very valuable, some very valuable insights into what is really going on in China, as opposed to what might uh, our theoretical framework might suggest should be going on in China. Two different things: what we think should happen and what uh, what actually does happen. Chen may also have some things to say about some of his favorite stock picks, so you won't want to miss that uh, as well. And Chen will be coming to us in the last half hour of today's show. Well, I'm speaking to you this week from Kelowna, British Columbia, one of the most beautiful spots on earth. Uh, it is just magnificent with the lakes and the mountains around here. Uh, and I'm attending a conference sponsored by the Norvista Group. That's a merchant bank out of Detroit, out of uh, Toronto. And I am privileged to be a speaker at this conference along with Jerry McCarver, who is uh, McCarvel, who heads up the Norvista Group. Also speaking there uh, is Andrew Bell. He's the host on BNN Television, with whom I have appeared frequently. And various diplomats from Canada and one from Colombia. It is uh, quite an event, and I hope to share more with you about this uh, experience sometime in the near future. But for now, I'm really privileged to have with me, it seems all too infrequently these days, Roger Wiegand. Uh, he is uh, my partner, as I mentioned earlier, and he writes an excellent newsletter if you're really interested in trading and interested in the futures markets, the currency markets and the like. Uh, Roger Wiegand is someone you want to get to know more about. And as I said, we do have a... We do provide a low-cost trial subscription to, to Roger as well as Chen and myself. You call Claudio Bossi in New York or go to miningstocks.com. Welcome, Roger. Good to be here, Jay. Thank you. Good to have you here. I'm actually for a change in the same time zone as you. Uh, we're talking to you at 5 after 12 in British Columbia. You're south of me uh, down in Washington State, I presume, today. That's right, that's right Jay. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, what's happening in the markets today? I see there's a big comeback in the, in the equity markets and the, in the prices of gold and the prices of, of a lot of commodities today. Is that what's taking place? Looks like a new base has been found uh, in gold and silver, and, and not only that, but some of the related shares. Typically, after a haircut like we got last Thursday and Friday, uh, the, the metals will respond first, and then the shares will kind of follow later on. But uh, some of the shares are, are basing, bottoming, and doing a little better today. Uh, the surprise last Friday was at how deep and how far gold did sell off. I expected that it was going to uh, hang on to around 1607. And at one point in the futures, we went down as low as 1532. Uh, some of our other colleagues, Jim Sinclair and others, were looking more at a base of about 1585. So it sold off pretty hard, but it came back. And here we sit today on this Tuesday. Uh, gold is $1,650, $1,650 on the December futures right now, up 3.4% today. Trading range was $62. Silver, 32.06. And silver had a nice pull, uh, comeback as well. Uh, the high today for solar was 33.58, and if you'll remember, that number was the base. The last time silver made a big drop from 50 back to 33, 33.58. So it looks like the new support is in. Uh, looks like the worst of the selling is over. Uh, new bases are being found, and uh, everything on my screen today, Jay, is green with the exception of a red U.S. dollar, and that's only mild. And of course, the long bond, it's a related companion. The dollar okay, is at 78.19, the bonds are at 141. Roger, could, uh, speaking of the dollar, could you tell us what level is it on the, the dollar index we're talking about now, I presume? What level is it at? It's at 78.20. 78.20. And if you all recall, uh, the big magnet number for the dollar on the index, and this has been a go to number for many years, is 880.80.00. We are under that, and that is major resistance at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, the dollar did hit a high of 78.99, call it 79, closing in on that 80 number. But the resistance there is so strong it backed up. Okay, so I guess if I guess if we got through that resistance level, uh, it would be very bullish for the dollar. I would say that's true, and then the next big number above 80 would be 82, 82 and a half. 
All right, Roger, uh, I know that you approach markets primarily from a technical point of view, but we saw this massive sell-off last week in, in gold and silver and, and copper and energy as well uh, over the last few trading days, and now it's, it's bouncing back, as you point out. But what do you think might have been some of the causes for the large decline in the, uh, in the precious metals last week? There's two reasons for it, Jay, that I can see. Number one, uh, gold had had such a nice run, a big pull, uh, comeback all the way up to $1,923. It did sell back then at the end of August and then went higher this month earlier. It made a double top, which is bearish, and that started the selling. And then the thing that, that made it even worse, technically we were supposed to sell, but these problems in Europe have escalated dramatically, and as a result of that, with an already weak silver and gold technical adjustment on, already started, uh, they took a real pounding. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not the end of the world, as, as some would say. Uh, our friend Frank Holmes was on Bloomberg today, and he's looking for a nice bounce back, uh, not only in the metals but also in the shares, and I, I, agree, with, I agree with Frank. Well, we've not seen the precious metal shares keep up with the gold price. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, the broader market has been uh, a little stronger, but then it got weak with the with the uh, general uh, depressionary or recessionary problems in Europe and the United States. But in addition to that, uh, I think that the shares, a lot of the share money, okay, that would go into shares has been taken away by some of these ETFs. Mm-hmm. Some of the traders uh, and investors in gold and silver shares. Uh, don't have the capacity or don't want to get involved in companies individually. And when the the GLD and the SLV ETFs came about, uh, they just decided they would invest there and that would cover the whole market based upon the metals themselves. I think that was a big takeaway from the shares. However, there's been a shaking out of the mining companies, as you know, versus 2008, uh, there were, I think, I told, somewhere around 5,000 at that time, uh, and, and the Lehman event in 08 uh, shook out some of the weaker ones. So now we've got the stronger ones remaining, and with the new the new prices going higher in gold and silver, I think that the shares will, in fact, follow and do better. Mm-hmm. People have been asking about uh, when is there going to be a divergence between the, the gold and silver shares and the broader stock market. We can see it a little bit on the edges, but we think it's going to take probably several months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to note if there are people are buying the ETFs, driving the, driving the price of gold higher, that in turn is uh, is helping mining company profits. And uh, as I've been talking about at this conference and the other conferences that I've been speaking at, we're seeing a surge in the in the profits of the. Well, I, tra- I track seven different mining companies, major mining companies like Newmont and Barrick and Gold Corp and the likes, and those companies' profits are surging. Uh, and so one would expect with P.E. ratios falling dramatically that we would ultimately, uh, eventually at least, see the gold shares picking up. But I see we do have to go to a commercial break, Roger, and when we come back I have a whole bunch of more ideas and, and things I want to ask you about. So please Stay with us, uh, folks. We're going to go to our first commercial break. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Roger Wiegand. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www www.rypatchgold.com Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. W.legendgold.com. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Northwest Quebec is one of the world's friendliest and most prolific areas for mining and exploration. One of the rising stars in this incredible region is Visible Gold Mines. From the exciting Wassamac area to Jutel, Visible Gold Mines is drilling nonstop in pursuit of the next important gold discovery in Northwest Quebec. Visible Gold Mines has the focus, experience, commitment, and resources necessary to rapidly emerge as a leader in the vibrant Quebec gold sector. Check out VisibleGoldMines.com, VGD, on the TSX Venture. Exchange. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I've got Roger Wiegand back with us after the break. Roger, before we, uh, before we took our break, we talked about uh, you know gold getting trashed, going down, gold and silver. It's bounced back now. What do you think is accounting for that? Well, it got oversold primarily, and I think some of the heat was taken off these problems in Europe. There's been no real conclusion as to their credit crisis as yet. But um, it's kind of calmed down for the last day or so. Uh, interestingly, the, uh, they've, they've got another budget question in the national government in the United States right now. Uh, but that's pretty, pretty artificial. I don't think that's got much to do with it. But gold took a pounding with the broader markets, and it's come back today, and the broader stock market has as well, not only yesterday but today. Well, give us a, some sense of what the broader stock market is doing. I know this is a weekly show, so uh, by the time some people download this show and their podcast, it may be old news. But uh, as I'm sitting here in British Columbia, without my uh, w- without my screen open to that, can you? What's happening in the Dow and, and the S and P, et cetera? Well, what the S and P was up like 31. Uh, the Dow was up well over 300 and over 200 yesterday. They're getting back to some more reasonable numbers. I, I, I mentioned earlier before this year that there was a lot of people out there trying to raise stock and selling new IPOs. Uh, the weakness that I see in the broader market, and I, I follow it very closely because it's a leading index, is the NASDAQ. And some of the NASDAQ companies had some problems, and along with that, they're trying to put out some new IPOs and sell a lot of stock. Some of that of late, the last two, three weeks, the IPOs have been pulled. They've been cut in half. 
uh, people are waiting. Uh, but that's a pretty good indicator, Jay, of where things are going to go across the broader market. And I finally saw somebody else of consequence on TV uh, say the same thing, that he used that as a signal. So we watched the NASDAQ 100 futures to see where, in fact, all the other stock indexes are going to go next. And the push right now is a recovery, uh, even though all the other old problems are remaining and lurking out there. It appears that we're on a new upswing for the time being. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly true that markets never go in one direction, do they? So that you have some backing and filling and ups and downs, and I guess that's what keeps us all guessing. To be able to see the bigger picture is, uh, is, is not so easy sometimes, and that's why we try to talk to people with longer-term views. Uh, okay, Europe. Europe um, it looks like a disaster case. We've got Greece seemingly, almost inevitably, in my view, going to default. What's your view on that? No, I agree with that, and we've been talking about that for some time. Uh, in addition, their neighbor next door, Portugal, I don't know if they still have. They, they had $6 billion worth of gold. Uh, I don't know whether that's been uh, sold or leased or whatever, but uh, that is one anchor that that country has. Ireland, of course, has gone through a big mess, but Ireland uh, is at a point now where I think they're going to reject some of the bank uh, central banking loans that really put them in the mess that they're in right now. But the bigger news, and I think this is very important, Jay, is I've been trying to figure out for some time now how are they going to get out of this mess, what is going to be the answer to consolidate these debts or do whatever they're going to do. And I did a lot of checking, and I found out that back in May, May 9th, uh, the year 2010, over a year ago, uh, the European uh, group, the Euroland group, put together uh, a, a stability facility. They call it EFSF, European Financial Stability Facility. And apparently they, they expected this crisis was going to come because this thing has been in place since uh, well over a year ago, May 9. It was agreed upon by 27 member states in Euroland. And what the idea was, it was going to put together some kind of a facility so they could give financial assistance to member states or nations that got into difficulty. One of the things they had to do first, if a, if a nation got in trouble like Greece, they had to be able to go out and try to borrow money at a reasonable rate. If they could not do it, then they could apply to this facility to try to get loans. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about it is 27 nations have agreed to this thing, and they've signed it, but Germany and France are responsible for fully half of the funding based upon uh, the guarantees. Uh, The rest of the countries are pretty tiny by comparison. So I think what they're going to do here now, and and in watching this thing and reading over more information, they're going to put together with central bankers in the IMF a massive, large $1.7 trillion to $2 trillion bailout and they're going to gather up all the, all the debts of these countries that are in trouble, which is most of them, put it all in one pile, and then they're going to put it into a derivative and sell the derivatives backed by the credit of the countries. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. That's what we did in the United States, and look how that turned out. Yeah. Not very well. No. So I think that's what's coming about. In reading further on this stability facility, They've got one month, four weeks, to try to put this thing together by the rules they, they instigated when they set this up. And that is the reason I think they've been talking the past few days. It's going to take six weeks to get this done and get it cleaned up. However, other uh, smart people on television and other analysts and announcers are saying we don't have six weeks left. If they do not get this thing together and get it approved, or at least uh, mostly approved, Probably within the next week or so, the European stock market could, in fact, go into a crash. Yeah. Now, if Europe crashes, uh, you know what's going to happen. It's going to take down Asia and the United States and everybody. Well, you would think so. We're so interconnected. And uh, the problem with moving quickly on something like this is that you have all these different governments that have to get approval to do this. And then what are you doing, really? You're socializing the problems again, aren't you? Or you're... Absolutely. I mean, all it does is... Uh, uh, our famous phrase, kick the can down the road, uh, that's what pretty much the same kind of an outcome that we saw with uh, 
the banks and the bankers and Washington and the Federal Reserve in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think that in this case, uh, the IMF and uh, Washington, Geithner and also Bernanke, are very interested in getting this thing done for two reasons. Number one, if it's not done fast enough, uh, the markets go down in Europe and take everybody down with them. Number next, there's a lot of American banks, Jay, that have big loans, and I mean really big loans, billions of dollars made to these countries and corporations in Europe. And in fact, if Europe goes haywire, uh, what's that going to do to the banks in the United States? It's going to be a rough go. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly seems to be, um, you know, it, it's it's the same old, same old. The policies have not changed, and we, we don't seem to learn from our past mistakes, which was always sort of the definition of neuroses. So I think we have a, a national and international and global neuroses, and honestly, I, I, I think maybe, you, you know, you delay it a little bit longer, you socialize it, but you're not teaching people the lessons they need to be taught, and that is you can't live beyond your means. You have to earn something. You can do it for a while. We learned that we can do it for a while, but it seems to me that the system is falling apart. And, the uh, you know, the problems, Roger, seem to be happening like these crises seem to be more frequent and more violent. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that, and that's just for the reason you suggested. They're not being addressed properly. Uh, if you looked at problems like this 40, 50 years ago, uh, the the banks that couldn't stand up and, and make it, uh, they would be shut down and the assets would be moved into other good banks, and, and then life goes on. Yeah. When Japan had their problem, in uh, 19 was it 1989 I believe right uh, and they didn't address the zombie bank zombie corporation they let them linger and continue and now they're underwater to the extent of debt twice what the U.S. is mm-hmm. no I mean it's uh, it's horrendous um, and you know and it doesn't get better because we're not facing the problems well that being the case where do you think the markets go through the end of this uh, this quarter. Well, it depends largely, I think, what what uh, happens with a QE3, which I'm expecting. Um, an official announcement, I think it's been unofficially been oper- in operation since July 1, but only on the edges, because Bernanke had a lot of paper unsold on the shelf that he put out for auction. He had to take it back. And that, that paper is being uh, pushed out into the system. So QE3 is one question. The other question is, uh, are the Europeans, in fact, going to get this uh, European financial stability facility thing uh, together and get all these countries and governments and banks to agree fast enough before they lose their markets? Yeah. Uh, I suspect they're going to take most of the time to get it done, probably at least a month, if not longer. But the way they could delay a crash is to say, this is our process, this is in process, and we think we've got it figured out, and this is what we're going to do, and then make a lot of happy talk, and maybe they can hang on. Mm-hmm. Now, if that occurred, and that's what I'm kind of expecting, along with what Bernanke could do and say with QE3, I think they could actually make these markets boom. Yeah. Well, it certainly could happen. You're, you're assuming a QE3 then, Roger? I'm assuming a QE3, and I'm assuming that it's going to be stated that the, it is a QE3. Right. I mean, there's been one in a stealth fashion, but if Bernanke came out and said, uh, we're going to do QE3 because the markets need it, we're going we're to put up another $500 million, I think the markets would fly. I think that would protect Europe. And if Europe would say, well, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, and it'll be done in three or four weeks, I think everything will settle down, the markets will rise, and we'll do well. But then again, like you were saying, it's going to kick the can. The problem is not solved. All they've done is cover it up and smother it. And then come May, June next year, we're looking for another 10 or 15% correction. Mm-hmm. But one year from today is the one that's got me extremely worried. Why that? This time next year, I think they're pretty much out of tools, out of bullets, out of ideas. And I think that's when we're going to be up for a major crash. All right. Well, unfortunately, we have... That's unfortunate. I hope you're wrong about that, uh, but I unfortunately believe that you are probably right. We are out of time, Roger. Thank you so much for coming on. Folks, don't go away. Coming up next is Dr. Jim Walker. He has some very interesting things to say about China, its economy, and what, uh, what he has to say may be surprising to many of you. Probably wouldn't be surprising to Roger. We'll see what Chen Lin has to say. But Dr. Walker thinks that China is in big, big trouble. And if you take China away from the equation along with Europe and the U.S., well, 
folks, I think Ian Gordon's view and Robert Prechter's view of a deflationary depression certainly seems to start to add up to, to make some sense. I hope all of these dire predictions are wrong. But anyway, let's hear what Dr. Walker says when we come right back after the break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me Dr. Jim Walker. Jim Walker is the founder and managing director of Asianomics Limited. That's an economic research and consultancy company servicing, well, principally the fund management industry. Prior to establishment, establishing Asianomics in December 2007, Jim was the chief economist at CLSA, Asia Pacific Markets, 
He joined CLSA in late 1991. Over the years, Dr. Jim achieved numerous best economist rankings in the Asian Money Institutional Investor and Greenwich Surveys of Fund Managers. In the last few years, he is best known for forecasting the U.S. 2007 downturn and financial sector meltdown in his series of apocalypse reports. Before coming to Asia, he worked uh, in his native Scotland as a research fellow at the Fraser of Allender Institute for Research on the Scottish Economy and then at the Royal Bank of Scotland, Edinburgh's uh, headquarters. He holds a Bachelor's of Arts Honours Degree and a Doctorate in Economics from the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow. Welcome, Jim, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, G. Really good to have you. You're t- we're talking um, uh, on the other side of the earth right now to you. It's 7.30 in the morning here for me, and it's 7.30 in the evening for you. Uh, you are presumably, well, you just we just read your bio, and you are from Scotland. You did your university work there. What caused you to move to Asia and focus your uh, economic re- research there? Yeah, by uh, by accident, I suppose, is the, the answer, really, G. Uh, I was one of the economists at the Royal Bank of Scotland um, in the, the, the late 1980s, mostly covering the oil industry and uh, the Scottish economy, and I felt like a change, and uh, there happened to be an advert in the, the Economist magazine for an economist at uh, a new stockbroker in Asia. Uh, I applied for it, got the job, and uh, came over to work in Hong Kong, for a company called Peregrine, which uh, sadly is no longer with us. It, it went bust in the, the Asian crisis in 1997. Um, I was only there for a year between 1990 and uh, 1991, but uh, that's how I got out to Hong Kong, and basically I've, I've been in Asia ever since. Well, it's uh, certainly you picked the, the growing, the most growing, uh, rapid growth part of the world to focus on, and it, I, I suppose there's more and more people that are uh, from the West that are focusing on that part of the world uh, for good reason. Well, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about your economic philosophy? Are you a Keynesian? Are you a monetarist? Or are you a free market Austrian thinker? Yeah, very much the the, the last of these, Jabe. Um, we, we make it very explicit in uh, Asianomics research that um, people are going to get a, an Austrian view of the world uh, from us. And it is a view of the world. We, we, um, we have a global overlay to our uh, Asian research. It's very important in, in this region to especially know what's going on in America. It used to be by far the biggest market for Asian exports. Uh, but it's also the case that the, the, the monetary policy and effectively the economic policies run by the United States are adopted and uh, uh, unfortunately in some instances carried to the extreme in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we look for is, uh, is chinks in the armor of, uh, of government policies. We, we try and watch for inflation, real inflation in the system. We don't look at consumer prices. We look at credit and money. Uh, we look at the credit cycle, and we try to determine whether or not economies are overheating and uh, give people an early heads up about whether to exit stock markets or uh, try and get into them. Well, I, I want to drill down into the... Asian economies um, before you know that's, that's the main thing I want to talk about but since you do look at the at a global overlay what is your sense of what's going on right now we're seeing uh, equity markets at least contract considerably um, you know since the uh, since the Lehman Brothers decline um, debacle uh, bankruptcy uh, we've seen uh, somewhat of a contraction, it would seem, uh, in credit overall. Uh, is your sense that credit still needs to contract further? Is it possible that we're heading into a very serious decline here, or, or do you think we may, uh, the policymakers may be able to inflate their way out of this debt crisis? No, they're, they're, they're certainly going to try and inflate their way out of it, and all they'll do is make the debt crisis worse. Uh, our commentary in December 2010, which obviously was two years after the crisis started, uh, only nine months ago, was that we were worse placed now uh, than we had been at the beginning of 2009, uh, just after the Lehman crisis. And that worse positioning is the result of government spending policies and uh, uh, the lunatic fringe, which seems to be the, the central bank governors. Uh, yeah. who think that they can print their way to to wealth and happiness again. 
Mm-hmm. They, they printed their way into destruction, um, and then they keep thinking that some more of the same medicine is going to get us out. I'm afraid, actually, the, the interesting thing about Asia is that it's going through this kind of debt deflation uh, issue uh, over the course of the last decade. And, and what it tells you very simply is that uh, we're in for a decade's worth of deleveraging uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. and in Europe. It's, it's not going to be any shorter than that. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly, uh, in 2002, Bernanke wrote a paper, Deflation, Making Sure It Doesn't Happen Here, and he, mm. I think, used the term helicopter money. We, uh, we've we seen what's happened. It's been more than a decade in Japan. For goodness sake, it's, it goes back to the late, uh, what was it, late 1990s, it, uh, or 19, the end of the 80s. We started with yeah. debt deflation in Japan. It, are they still quite a ways from finishing that problem in Japan? In fairness, the, the, the Japanese example is, is uh, an odd one. Um, mm-hmm. Japan doesn't need inflation, and it actually doesn't need growth. This is one of the things that I think economists are particularly bad at uh, coming to grips with about Japan. J- Japan is a, a society and an economy in decline. It's not in decline in a, uh, a nasty sense. It's actually just declining. It's population is shrinking, mm-hmm. its labor force is shrinking even faster. And the, the irony of Japan is that if GDP grows at zero for the uh, forthcoming 10 years, everybody in Japan gets richer. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what the Japanese have, have actually done, I, I would say, reasonably well over the last eight or nine years, has managed their decline increasingly well. Um, the Bank of Japan runs a very tight monetary policy, almost an Austrian policy. Mm. They don't print very much money at all. Mm. Uh, that allows the yen to strengthen, and that then puts downward pressure on import prices. The, the Japanese welcome deflation because they, they don't have very much income growth. If prices mm. are falling at the same time, then real incomes are rising. This is the one thing that I don't understand about people like Bernanke. I don't like paying more for everything that I buy every year. I like paying less. And yeah. I think everybody's in the same boat. That That's good deflation. He, he just doesn't seem to get it. Uh, mm. we, we know that money and credit contraction is bad deflation. But I'm afraid you tend to get that after the excesses that we've had in the last 20 years. Mm. So there's good reason to be bullish on the, on the yen long term then? It, it, certainly in the... the, the I would say near term, that the one problem that the Japanese do have, uh, which is mirrored elsewhere in the world at the moment, is that uh, their government has been incontinent. Um, their debt-to-GDP ratio is 200%. Uh, their net debt position is obviously a bit better than that. But the fact is that the ageing of the Japanese population means that the demand for government bonds, and given that it's, it's a purely domestic market, this is uh, the mm-hmm. important area of demand, Mm-hmm. The demand for government bonds is actually going to come to an end at some time relatively soon. And at that point, I think the, the, the currency is probably under some threat because they'll have to go to international markets to buy government paper, uh-huh. unless they've, they've found religion by that time and have got rid of their deficit, which uh, unfortunately doesn't look likely with these multiple changes of Japanese government. Right. Well, they certainly have uh, not been timid when it comes to fiscal stimulus, the Japanese, mm-hmm. have they? No, they haven't. Um, in fact, to be quite honest, it really just has got out of hand. Uh, the, 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 the part of the economic management apparatus that has tried to, to keep it in check is the, is the Bank of Japan. And that's where the, the real, um, if you like, steadfastness in Japan lies. The, the Bank of Japan doesn't rotate its governor uh, that, uh, that often. The, the, the Monetary Policy Board have been in place for a long time. I think they fully understand what's good for Japan and that and deflation has been uh, increasingly good for Japan and increasingly comfortable for a, an aging population. Um, but the government still just hasn't got it. And, uh, Unfortunately, I think time is running out for them, uh, and that's when the, the, the real problems in Japan could begin. Mm-hmm. Well, the government uh, probably is comprised of people who have been educated in institutions that taught them Keynesian economics, so they're just doing what they were taught, and they got their uh, their good grades in the university with uh, learning that you just spend your way to prosperity. Well, Jim, I first became aware of the of Asianomics when I watched a documentary on the ghost towns of China. And the report talked about 64 million empty apartments, and the reporter suggested that this is a major bubble. 
uh, compared to the housing bubble even in the United States, which we're really, really suffering through and will for some time, in my view, in the U.S. Well, I passed along that link of that um, uh, of that documentary to Jim Rogers, who I'm sure you know, um, and he responded by email back to me saying, and I quote, that's old news which has been circulating for two or three years from the bears who have been and continue to be dead wrong. Even if there are 64 million empty apartments, that is not too dramatic in a country of 1.3 billion people, which, which had virtually no construction for 200 years. There has been an overbuilding in China since I first went there 27 years ago as they try to catch up. Yes, there is a real estate uh, price problem in urban coastal cities, which the government has been trying to cool for two years. It seems to be working, so I presume there will be bankruptcies in real, uh, in real estate, but that is far from being the uh, Chinese economy. He says, I suspect there will be bankruptcies among the Chinese uh, among the China bears, since they have been wrong, I suspect there will not be. Ban oh, I'm not sure what he's saying. I suspect there will be bankruptcies among the China bears, since they have been wrong for a couple of years and have little understanding of what is happening in China. End of quote. To what extent do you think that, uh, Mr. Well, to what extent do you agree or disagree with Jim Rogers? Well, you've got to love Jim because he wears his uh, his heart on his sleeve and. Uh, uh, there's no doubt he's a Chinophile, um, <laughs> uh, hence the reason that he said that he moved to China, actually he moved to Singapore, which is yeah. we're near China, but uh, maybe Jim's <laughs> geography is not that good, um, <laughs> but he, 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 he makes his case uh, always rather eloquently and uh, rather forcefully. Um, being a, one of the China bears, uh, not always been a China bear, I, I was much more bullish about China in the early 2000s when they were uh, involved in market reforms, uh, but they've gone backwards in, that, in a big way in the last five, ten years. Um, as one of the China bears since uh, around about 2006, um, I have to note, uh, and I hope Jim realizes this, that the stock market in China hasn't moved since early 2007. Uh, we're actually at uh, early 2007 uh, levels of the stock market today. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it went up, uh, and if he was dead, then I'm sure Jim is dead smart. He sold at the top and uh, bought at the bottom. He'll have made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, but for most people, investing in China over the last four years has been nothing but grief. Mm -hmm. um, where I think uh, he's mistaking things, and I think it's the starry-eyed, uh, shiny city um, feature that, that really takes over an awful lot of people. People are very impressed by China, especially relative to India and Asia, because uh, China's got huge big roads that uh, cars whiz along because there's nobody else on them. Uh, it's got lovely shiny apartment blocks and office blocks and shopping malls that uh, have been empty for the last three years. And India's totally chaotic. But, but what India has over China is a cost of capital that is very uh, realistic in market terms. It, it's much higher uh, than the rate of inflation. It, it makes companies um, treat capital with respect. They mm -hmm. wouldn't just build for building's sake. In China, they repress the price of capital. Uh, the, the cost of capital, uh, well, for example, real deposit rates in China are at minus 3% just now. Wow. Uh, the cost of capital has been below the nominal rate of GDP growth uh, for the last decade by as much as 10 percentage points. Um, normally, in, in most countries, uh, the price of capital is around about the same uh, level as the nominal GDP growth rate. And all that does is it encourages what we in the Austrian school would call malinvestment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, has been a, an increasing feature of the Chinese economy, which has exploded literally in the last mm -hmm. three years. Mm -hmm. Well, to what extent in China, you have the 64 million empty apartments. Um, to what extent is that a function of low interest rates, and to what extent is that a function of a command economy? Is a, is a combination of the two? What I should say is that the, the, the report um, about the 64 million uh, was 64 million non-functioning electricity meters. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just apartments that could have been uh, uh, office blocks, it could have been shopping shopping malls, it, mm -hmm. it, it could have been the whole uh, gamut of property in China. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's maybe a bit broader than just the empty apartments. Uh, what, what, what has really happened here is that, um, especially in response to the, uh, the slowdown in 
exports, uh, which took place at the end of 2008 with the uh, the meltdown in the global financial system uh, when trade credit disappeared. Asia went into the deep freeze. Uh, Asia had the worst recession in 2009 uh, of any part of the world, if you look at the numbers, and that included China. And what happened was that the Chinese government responded to that by the, the biggest stimulus program on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, we we criticise uh, as a, a company Bernanke and his zero interest rate policy and his, mm-hmm. his inflationism, um, but we're much much more critical of Beijing and its inflationism. In 2009, uh, the, the Chinese added 44% of the previous uh, year's GDP in terms of an increase in money supply. Mm. Um, and if you properly count credit over the last three years, uh, that means not just the, the credit in the official banking system, but the shadow banking system. What you'll find is that it's been adding 48% of the previous year's GDP for 2009 and 2010, and looks like adding 44% of 2010's GDP this year. Mm. This is inflation of the most extraordinary magnitude. <laughs> uh, and I think to, to believe that uh, the Chinese economy, economy can come out the other side of that uh, unscathed, uh, well, you certainly wouldn't be an Austrian if you believed that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly what you're saying then is I, I would I would gather you, you think that hyperinflation is not that far away or is, is a real possibility in China? Well, in, in my book, uh, that, that growth in credit is already more or less hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We, we, we try and distinguish for our clients the, 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 the mainstream uh, economics community and central banks in particular have done a tremendous disservice to understanding uh, economies by this concentration on uh, consumer price inflation, mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. particular on core consumer price inflation. What we keep saying to our clients is that inflation is about the expansion of money and credit in the system. That that can cause all sorts of distortions if it's not properly managed. And so it's not just in terms of consumer prices that inflation shows up. It can be in asset prices, and that was true of the U.S. for uh, much of the, the, the 2000s, but the central bank, of course, didn't look at them. Um, it can be in fixed asset investment activity, and particularly it's in credit growth. And so our uh, commentary to clients is very much that you've got to look at all three of these things. You can actually more or less ignore consumer prices. But if you see very fast growth in investment, very fast growth in credit, and fast growth in asset prices, then you have an inflation bubble, and it might not be classified as hyperinflation, but it's it's an impending bust in the future, and it's just a question of timing that bust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, when when things move so rapidly, much more rapidly than savings are occurring, and of course, um, how would you compare then the policies then in China sound very much like, their monetary policies sound very much like Bernanke's, but just, I guess, more so, right? Just more aggressive, yeah, indeed. More aggressive. We have a chart that we show uh, our clients, which is uh, the, the Chinese M2 numbers restated in U.S. dollars, and we, we put it against the, the U.S. Uh, M2 uh, series, obviously, in dollars as well. And in 2009, China actually did become the biggest economy in the world in terms of uh, the dollar amount of M2 that's in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really it went from being 55% of the U.S. in 2005 to currently around about 130% uh, of U.S. M2. So the Chinese have done a, an extraordinary job in printing money um, mm. and an extraordinary job in uh, misallocating it. Mm. Well, I guess they would if they're if they're pumping it in so fast. There's no way the market responds. Plus, you have also you still have structurally a, a command economy in China, and I, of course I would argue that we're moving more in that direction in the U.S. as well, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. And to say that we are a capitalist country, I think, is um, is is incorrect in the U.S. But um, so my good friend and partner Chen Lin, uh, who is from Beijing and and now mm-hmm. works in the U.S. and is doing exceptionally well. Uh, picking stocks, um, and actually gave up a uh, PhD program in aeronautical engineering at Princeton because he was making so darn much money. Has is really an inflationist, and he and I are having constantly are having these discussions about inflation or deflation. And I tend to be more a deflationist, but Chen knows the history of China, 
This is nothing new for China, I guess, is it? This this inclination to inflate with paper money. No, that's right. In fact, um, the, the history of China is of uh, massive inflations from from time to time. In fact, that's why the uh, the Kuomintang lost control in the, the 1940s. The, the, the Communist Party, being the the only alternative at that point, booted out the, the Kuomintang in the, the face of uh, rampant food price and other price inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the closest times to the, the Communist Party coming unstuck. Uh, uh, over the course of the last 20, 30 years, uh, for example, Tiananmen Square in 1989 um, was really the, uh, the the result of uh, rapid food price inflation yet again in China. So the, the Chinese are, are very um, inflation-orientated in their policies to try and stimulate growth, but the minute they realize that inflation has been let loose and whether that's uh, consumer price inflation, food price inflation, or indeed property price inflation, which is one of the key elements just now, mm-hmm. they, they do take measures to stop it because they know that it's socially disruptive and mm-hmm. very socially disruptive. Mm-hmm. The, the, the focus at the moment in China has become increasingly controlling inflation. I, I just think people are underestimating how long they're going to have to try and uh, take measures to control it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, it seems to me, um, you know, I, I travel around and speak at various conferences, and a good number, especially my Canadian competitors, tend not to be free market orientated. They tend to be Keynesians in their thinking. They are very focused on the mining industry. They know that industry very well. And they are constantly bullish on the base metals, where I, whereas I am not. I'm more bullish on the metals, on the, on the monetary metals, uh, gold and silver. And they have this constant belief that somehow China is going to continue to be the engine of growth in the world that will keep their sectors, their base metal mining companies profitable. But do you see the possibility, you know, of course the word is used is overshoot, which is just nonsense because to think that a few a few guys sitting around some fancy table somewhere can determine how much money needs to be put in the system and how much needs to be taken out is nonsense. But that's, of course the notion that we have and what we've been brought up with to believe. But do you think that it's possible then that that China could could really suck us into some sort of a global, you know, China combined with the problems that the West is having right now, suck us into some sort of a global deflationary credit uh, contraction uh, episode? Well, it's interesting that that you say that. Uh, Literally this morning I've been finishing off a... Uh, a paper which is called Who Will Save China? Uh, mm-hmm. Because the, the, the notion at the moment seems to be that China can just dip into its international reserves and pull a rabbit out of the hat, which is called a, a bailout for the European banks, uh, end up owning perhaps most of uh, European sovereign debt and European banking system mm-hmm. that uh, it will save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, of course, uh, absolute nonsense. It's, uh, it's, it's, the, the Chinese just don't have anywhere near the amount of money that would be required for that because so much of their international reserves are uh, are forced to be in very liquid paper, which is purely available from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that, the, 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 the whole notion of what the Chinese have done over the course of the last three years to stimulate the economy is going to come home to roost, and it's coming home now. This, this is, to my mind, 2005-2006 U.S., uh, when the, the, the central bank was tightening um, everybody was gung-ho. Alan Greenspan was the maestro. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, property market could never go down. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, even by that time, uh, the, 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 dating back to 2005, the property market had uh, begun to show signs of, of trouble. And I think we're beginning to see signs of trouble in China just now, but it's, it's going to gather pace. The thing that, that, that we keep saying to clients, Jay, is that, that there's only two options in an economy. That there's no landing at all uh, as central banks pump in money or governments uh, increase budget deficits, mm-hmm. or there's a hard landing for the economy. There's no such thing as a soft landing for mm-hmm. economies. Mm-hmm. Economic managers are just not good enough. Mm-hmm. to bring a plane into a soft landing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we, we're faced with either no landing or a hard landing. I think the fact is that things have got out of hand on the supply side, especially with property in China, and now the demand side is being curtailed with, uh, with policy actions. 
and therefore we're in for a hard landing. And that's going to come as a major surprise, not just to Canadian um, commentators and Canadian mining uh, executives, but uh, their counterparts in Australia as well, who will not hear a a negative story about China told. Uh, Their their ears are closed to anything other than 10-15% growth in demand for iron ore, coal, etc., etc., ad infinitum. Well, it seems to me, if I'm if I'm hearing what you're saying, is that at this point in time, uh, you're sort of betting on the hard landing. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure, and that could be that could have profound deflationary impacts, especially given given what's going on in Europe and the United States. Do you see this as, as potentially a global deflationary depression coming on, or maybe not deflation um, because they're printing money like mad? Well, you know, the, the, the money printing is going to come to an end. The, 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 the issue now in China is that increasingly it seems to be the case that any money they print goes more and more into price inflation than it goes into economic activity. Uh, and this is usually the spot that the economies come to. Um, when the economy slows down, do I see um, a debt deflation spiral downwards? Uh, I think it's a possibility, um, and I don't think there's very much that, uh, uh, that that governments and central banks can do now, given how failed their policies have been over the last two to three years. Uh, so we, we might actually get the shakeout in things like the financial services industry uh, that's actually required and should have happened in 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. um, and we... we, we uh, we, we contract capital, we, we destroy the capital that is, uh, is not worth anything, and then we start getting back on our feet again. But that might take a couple of years, and it will be pretty nasty, I think, uh, mm-hmm. during those two years. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, we're going to have to take a, a commercial break here. I want to come right back on the other side of the break and ask you a little bit more about this um, well, this uh, reallocation of wealth in China. There does seem to be a surging wealthy class, and they... Uh, 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 but still, a lot of very poor people in that in that vast country. So, uh, if you could just uh, maybe we'll come back and I want to ask you about that. And there's a whole lot of other things I want to ask you before uh, before you have to leave us today. So, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Dr. Jim Walker. community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network legend gold corp is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in mali west africa with successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits shareholder value is anchored at chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold the recent addition of the munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike legend gold trades under the symbol lgn on the tsx venture exchange please go to our website at www www.legendgold.com Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000. 
while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Northwest Quebec is one of the world's friendliest and most prolific areas for mining and exploration. One of the rising stars in this incredible region is Visible Gold Mines. From the exciting Wasimak area to Jutel, Visible Gold Mines is drilling nonstop in pursuit of the next important gold discovery in Northwest Quebec. Visible Gold Mines has the focus, experience, commitment, and resources necessary to rapidly emerge as a leader in the vibrant Quebec gold sector. Check out VisibleGoldMines.com, VGD, on the TSX Venture Exchange. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 